ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Women and Society podcast, where I talk about issues women face in society. Today's episode is going to be about addressing gender bias in society. Let's face it, it's 2020 and gender bias is still happening. Although it has definitely gotten better over the years, we still do see gender bias in society more specifically in academia, health research, and workplaces. In this podcast, I will be focusing on gender bias in society through two lenses, one being the underrepresentation of women in academia, the second being gender bias in health research. Although some still believe in the stereotypical domestic roles for women and men and support gender bias due to this, I argue against gender bias in health research and academia. This is due to the effects it has on women, such as lack of treatment, certain personal characteristics like lack of confidence, self-esteem, and health effects. Later on in this podcast, I will be interviewing a special guest to discuss more about this topic. So let's start off by discussing the historical aspect of gender bias. When did this really start? We can go all the way back to around 350 BC, where we learn in lecture about how women were viewed. There was always a categorization of differences. As Aristotle mentions once, women were able to think and deliberate, but are born to be ruled by men and by nature, they are designed for only one job, which is procreation and nurturing. From there, we shift to a two-sex model, which occurred at the end of 17th century, followed by the French Revolution. And to justify legal and political rights, they needed to prove of woman's inferiority, and so they turned to science, where scientists and doctors claimed many things of women, such as fragile intellectualness, delicacy of sports, and much more. These claims established the four binaries of women's health, which were abnormal, healthy, safe, and whole, and its opposites. Many scholars such as Edward Clark, who was a Harvard medical professor, advocated in his book, Sex and Education, against women receiving an education. He believed that women receiving education affected their reproduction, but yet there was no evidence to prove that. And so we could see throughout the Women in Health course taught by Professor Williams at UTSC that many of these claims mention about women biologically, socially, psychologically, physically, were made by men. These categorizations and claims of women is what really started the separation for a lack of better word. And eventually, it led to what we call gender bias in society. So let's talk about what's happening now in gender bias. In 2005, Guardian posted an article talking about how the president of Harvard University, Larry Summers, had made a controversial statement about why women are poor at science. He continued by explaining why there were a small number of tenured women working in top universities. Inside Higher Ed had found that in his remarks, he stated that women were less likely to work long hours than men, 
and hypothesized many other reasons as to why women would never be able to receive a high-paying profession. His comments raised many questions and controversial thoughts. However, Larry Summers wasn't the only one to make such comments about women. In fact, he motivated many other men to talk about gender stereotypes. Three years ago, a Google software engineer, James Damore, wrote a memo that questioned Google's company diversity and claimed that low number of women working in the tech department was due to biological differences and not discrimination. The New York Times article discussed how Google was dealing with criticism mentioned how they haven't hired or promoted women and minorities. However, they also had long promoted a culture of openness. He ended up being fired as many women working in the company had felt judged and hurt by his claims. So, both underrepresentation of women in academia and gender bias in health research are connected, as they affect treatments for women with medical issues, impact certain personal characteristics like confidence, and this in turn can increase and promote this gender stereotype of women being lower than male. So, like I mentioned earlier, I will be focusing on two lenses, but let's first talk about underrepresentation of women in academia. This is a topic that has been an issue for a really long time, and either something is said about it or nothing is really done about it. Alright, so to talk about this in further detail, let's welcome our special guest, Janaki Gunashaker. She's a fourth year student at York University, majoring in health studies, and she took a course called Women and Human Rights. Welcome, Janaki, and thank you for joining me in this podcast episode. Hi, um, no problem. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay, so let's talk about underrepresentation of women in academia. How is gender bias seen in academia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I actually learned about this in the class that I had taken and read about it before. There are many ways women face gender bias in academia. One mechanism that that caught my attention were terminologies used in recommendation letters. There was a study conducted in 2009 by Madeira and her colleagues, and she examined how the social theory of sex differences is evident in recommendation letters for men compared to women in academia. This study found gender stereotypes in recommendation letters in which terms such as sensitive, nurturing, warm, sympathetic, etc. were used commonly in recommendation letters written for females. And for males, words such as agentic, ambitious, and self-confident were used in their letters. This in turn impacted hiring decisions made in academia and influenced the hiring rating of applicants. We still face this issue of women earning less than men for the same occupation and position. This can also be seen in research funding. There is still an issue of underrepresentation of women in academia. In 2015, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the USA came out with an article discussing personal research funding success in the Netherlands and how gender played a role in this. To investigate this gap, the funding gap, 
they examined a full population of researchers who applied for a prestigious personal grant from 2010 and 2012. They looked at gender differences in success rates and application evaluation. The results showed that the success rate was significantly lower in females than male applicants. The study concluded that gender disparities were evident in the quality of their researcher rather than the quality of their research proposal. In terms of the grant schemes, there were also a substantial difference in funding rates among gender. As you can see, there's a gender bias in research itself and funding gap. This in turn affects their career and usually their research will be discontinued due to this. A huge element of research is funding and many researchers need a grant to start to start the research, and if, there's, um, if there is a less successful, if they are less successful at getting funding depending on their research, their research would most likely be discontinued. Yeah, definitely. These are great points that you bring here. And so you talked about underrepresentation of women in academia and letter recommendations. Um, speaking about research, where do we see gender bias in health research? And uh, I guess my question really is, how did it really start? Mm -hmm. Earlier when I was talking to you, you had mentioned this article called The Female Problem, How Male Quiet in Medical Trials Ruined Women's Health. It was written by Gabriel Jackson on The Guardian, and so I took a quick read at it. She starts off this, the article by talking about how women were perceived during the common era. She talks about how during this time, anything medical or science-related was very much measured by men. An article written by Bosco in 2004 talks about the healthcare system being dominated by white and white male health professionals. He further states how these white male health professionals perceived women lacking information about their health, thus making it hard for them to make informed decisions for themselves. Yeah, that, that is very true. And this also can explain the power dynamic between the patient who is typically a female and the doctor who is typically a male, and how sexism, racism, and paternalism play a crucial role in the healthcare system. Exactly. And this power dynamic of male domination in science is also seen in anatomy drawings, knowledge presented in medical textbooks, obstetric violence, and unethical procedures performed by male doctors on females. And my professor, Sarah Williams, she actually discusses this in class and it intrigued me about how the male body is often shown as the major human body, while the female body is seen as a deviation of the norm. Right, and the reason for this was because of sexism and the dogma of how female bodies weren't as accessible as male bodies. Earlier you mentioned how scientists and doctors claimed many things that women were not capable of doing due to their physical and biological characteristics. Oftentimes, in textbooks and articles written about women's health and their biology, we see four binaries in health. These categorizations and paternalism made women struggle to understand their own body and created many other dilemmas in their knowledge and in science. Right. So we kind of talked about the history behind women representation in biology, um, but how does this relate to clinical trials? Right. So this has been an issue for many years where women were excluded and underrepresented in 
um, clinical trials. We definitely don't see this anymore where women are excluded, but we do see other forms of gender bias in health research. There were a number of issues that arose with the underrepresentation of women in clinical studies. In 1994, the Institute of Medicine came out with a report created by committee members of all disciplines, and the aim of this report was to promote inclusion of women in clinical studies. Yes, yes, and I remember learning about this in lecture, and I guess, and I think one of the major issues with this report is that it fails to recognize the importance of fair inclusion of all stages of women, especially pregnant women in clinical research. Yeah, exactly. And today we still see gender disparities in research in terms of evidence-based medicine. A research conducted by Anita Olkoff examines how medicine has been flawed due to, to, flawed to include sex differences in research. She talks about how men were being studied for coronary artery disease, even though women were more likely to suffer from it. Yes, and I believe this article discusses how this is problematic because since researchers are mainly focusing on men being affected with coronary artery disease, they are increasingly wasting money since it fails to look at both sexes and increases women health burden and ethics in research. So how does this affect their treatment? Great, so that's a good question. It affects women's treatment because there is a failure to recognize the impact sex and gender has on research design and outcome. There will be difficulty applying the concepts to treatment if most of the evidence-based medicine is focused on one gender and sex over the other. You mentioned an excellent point. Um, when I was reading actually Day's article written in 2016, she writes about the importance of integrating sex and gender in health research. She also mentions the point you said about recognizing the impact and challenge in data collection and data sets, and importantly, understanding the impact of sex and gender on research. So with all that being said, what can we do about this gender bias issue in academia and health research? Hmm. Well, that's really tough to say. This is an issue we can't resolve in one day. And definitely with the women's health movement, we have seen many changes to healthcare, research, mm -hmm. and just general inclusion of women in society. Although the claims made about female bodies and exclusion of women in science um, and medicine persisted in the 17th century to mid um, the mid-80s, there is a clear improvement of where women stand today in science. <laughs> Unfortunately, we still see the segregation of males and females today. It's not as extreme as how it was in the 17th century, but it can be seen in other parts in healthcare and society. The phrase that history repeats itself is apparent in gender bias. Many claims made in the 50s and 60s have been motivated scholars like Larry Summers, as you mentioned earlier, to speak about why less women are, are in science. The woman's right to help and inclusion in society is still a work in progress, and there is definitely much more room for improvement. Nonetheless, today we have a bigger community to support feminism and to advocate for inclusion of women in society. Right, and these are such amazing points that you bring here. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast episode. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. That's a wrap for today's podcast episode. Hope you all enjoyed this episode and see you in the next one.